0: Um, So it's really my pleasure to introduce today's speaker for DC5 curriculum. The speaker today is Dr. Kevin Chung. Uh, So Dr. Chung did his uh, training at West Point um, and then did his medical school training at Georgetown um, before ultimately going on to do his critical care training uh, at Walter Reed. Um, Dr. Chung has a long list of accomplishments related to his service in the military, as well as all of his um, accolades through critical care medicine. Most recently, he served as the critical care consultant for the Army Surgeon General um, he's professor of medicine as well as a uh, professor of surgery at Uniform Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland and I'm excited to have him here today to talk about environmental injuries. So Dr. Chung, thank you so much for being here with us today. Go ahead and take it away. Thank you Dr. Levine for the kind invitation and uh, the, the introduction. Uh, hello everybody. Um, uh, with everything going on in this world, it seems not as important, but uh well, we have to drive on um, so uh, I've been tasked and asked uh to give this talk uh, on environmental injuries and uh to be honest with you I, I feel pretty comfortable with burns and electrical, but I'm clearly not an expert in altitude and, and heat stroke um, so i'll I'll try to hit the wave tops uh, and uh, hit some important take home points. Uh, But I just wanted to to start with that. Uh, Here is, let's see if I can, there we go. Uh, My usual disclaimer, I do have uh, a patent uh, for decision support uh, that's been licensed since I was part of the government. I make no profit, zero profit from it. So I will be discussing that technology uh, given that it's uh, used relatively widely now um, in the burn community. So, burns, uh, I think uh, I want to start out by introducing you to this review that my friends and I from Canada and a couple of places in the United States um, uh, put together, uh, led by Dr. Mark Jeske, who's um, a very uh, prominent burn surgeon um, in uh, the world burn community. Um, Hopefully, you can pull this up, Uh, I have that QR code in the corner. Uh, And uh, this is a good one for your files. This was uh, published a couple of years ago in uh, Nature Reviews, and uh, pretty comprehensive from epidemiology to uh, through critical care and then rehab and surgical techniques, uh, different types of uh, coverage, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I uh, highly encourage you to take a look at this. Uh, A lot of work went into putting this together, Um, and, you know, this is – there's a chart in – a graph in here that um, we created, uh, and it's very similar to the one in Perillo, um, uh, but it, it breaks down burn care into different phases of care, and, and so uh, what's important to to understand, and, and this exists for uh, other patient populations, uh, but for burns, uh, th- this is quite important because uh, a patient in day one is not the same as a patient in day four, uh, and then that patient is very different from the patient in day, you know, 120, sometimes uh, those patients, you know, burn patients remain in the ICU through 120 days, which is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. Um, but that that's how long some patients will, will stay in the ICU. And and um, uh, really there's intra-patient variability that exists, and you can't treat even the same patient the same way, um, uh, you know, uh, depending on when they are in their hospitalization uh, In terms of resuscitation and recovery. And so, you know, I I spent probably about 13 years in the burn center in uh, in San Antonio. And as a medical intensivist, you know, I was a guest uh, there. I did did medical uh, director duties, but, you know, I I was sort of, I felt like an outsider uh, sort of looking in. But I learned a lot as I uh, helped take care of these patients um, in, in the burn center. Uh, And I think the biggest thing I learned is that not very many things that we do in critical care really matters if the burn wounds are not addressed. Uh, In a situation where the burn wounds are not optimal, uh, you know, burn wounds are not excised appropriately and uh, grafted uh, appropriately that is uh, a disaster, and nothing you do as an intensivist will help. And so, really, this is the most important thing, the, the wounds. Much like when you have a dead extremity uh, or a dead gallbladder, it's got to come off, and it's got to come off completely sometimes if you have a full thickness burn. This is a fascial excision, and um, and after that fascial excision or tangential excision on, in this case, uh, there needs to be autograft applied, and then you need to have uh, wound closure. Uh, until this happens, uh, more than ninety-five percent of coverage. Uh, until that occurs, the patient is at risk for uh, infectious complications and uh, and other uh, you know complications that occur uh, in the ICU. And so, really, as your as the intensivist, your your job is to protect the patient from uh, infectious disease complications and other uh, types of nosocomial or uh, other ICU-related complications and optimize the conditions of wound healing. And so, you know, this is a diagram that sort of describes a typical patient when they sustain an injury. Uh, You have tissue damage that causes a host response and that may lead to a little bit of a systemic uh, response, sometimes it leads to organ failure, and a uh, patient may die. Most times, uh, fortunately, we support them uh, through recovery. Uh, in a, and that happens maybe once or twice, um, repeated insult, uh, maybe a complication such as a VAP. In burns, this happens repeatedly, over and over and over again, because uh, if you have somebody who's a 50% burn, you can't, Get achieve definitive cov- coverage in one shot. It's got to be a staged approach. And so uh, imagine a 50% burn. All that burn has to come off, uh, and all the available areas of normal skin are harvested, causing a 90% open wound uh, to, to um, you know, harvest graft, autograft, mesh them, and uh, place them in the areas that were previously burned. And so there's not enough uh, skin um, uh, a lot of times, and, um, you know, burn, previously burned areas are temporarily covered with a cadaver skin or pig skin or other skin substitutes, uh, and then the patient gets taken back to surgery about two weeks later when the, the, um, the donor sites have healed, and then that those same donor site is taken again. Uh, I've had patients who were, you know, higher than 90%, for example, who had their scalp harvested for donor site more than a dozen times because that was the only part that wasn't burnt. And that's the only place that you can get autographed. So you can imagine how uh, much of a drawn out uh, hospitalization, particularly ICU hospitalization, this can be. And this happened over and over again where you get an insult every time you go to the OR to do a debridement, they become bacteremic because they have dirty wounds, no matter how clean you try to make them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, typically a 50% excision results in a three to four liter blood loss. And so you, get a, you have a hemorrhagic shock uh, condition uh, going on in the OR uh, being resuscitated. Uh, and each time that happens, um, there's an inflammatory process, and the patient uh, is in shock. Uh, at, you know, nine times out of ten is in shock after the OR. And so, uh, you know, in the burn unit, in the burn ICU, there's uh, this common knowledge that it's a race against time to get these burn wounds closed. And your job as the intensivist is to optimize the conditions for this to occur. Uh, If the burn wounds don't get closed, then patients end up uh, with uh, conditions like this, where um, they die of the common bread mold. This is aspergillus just overtaking the wounds, wounds never really healed, and um, you know, donor sites converted where they needed to be covered, uh, and this is just a disaster. Um, so you're trying to prevent that from happening. And so how do you do that? Well, you you basically practice good critical care. All of you are learning that now uh, in, in your training. Uh, and in burns, um, it's not that much different, except sometimes it could be extreme. Uh, for example, uh, let's start with resuscitation. Uh, you know, typical resuscitations are – Uh, primarily crystalloid. Uh, I know we're going away from that in other disease states as much as possible and trying to limit crystalloid use. Uh, In the burn, during the first 24, 48 hours after a severe burn, this is still the mainstay where they're getting 20, sometimes 30 liters of fluid, and that's that's just what they need. Uh, And so this is something that um, is an extreme case of uh, resuscitation that – um, if you ever encounter um, a burn patient in the first 24 hours after they're injured, this is uh, really hairy—a hairy, hairy situation—and you're 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 in for the um, so a These patients are basically in distributive shock, and um, there's you know it's characterized by extensive capillary leak, uh, both in burned and unburned tissue, and it's sort of this uncontrolled uh, distributive shock. And um, in order to of guide clinicians, for years there have been uh, many different formulas that have been uh, advocated. And uh, finally, you know, two decades ago almost, um, the, the burn community got together, at least in the United States, and said, okay, we have a consensus. We're going to say you're to go if you're, if you start your resuscitation by deriving your initial fluid rate uh, based on uh, formulas that are between two and four cc's per k t- per TBSA. Uh, As you know, you take that total volume, uh, multiplying, let's say, four times weight times the TBSA, divide by two, and give that first half in the first eight hours. Uh, I can tell you that those traditional formulas are are great. Uh, In fact, if you're taking a board exam, um, use the Parkland. Um, But in practice, you know, this this idea that you're going to somehow at hour eight magically go half your fluids, that's that's, uh, a fantasy. That doesn't happen. Uh, You start your initial fluid rate, and then um, you guide your uh, fluid rate hour to hour based on what the patient is giving you and telling you uh, based on the urine output and a compilation of uh, other endpoints, basic critical care, right? Uh, And so really, uh, these formulas don't really matter, and all they're doing is helping you uh, derive the starting point. And so, you know, going through, like, four calculations on a piece of paper uh, or on your calculator, that, you know, you're not going to do that. Nobody does this. Uh, You know, students and residents and interns do. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, you're you're rarely going to sit down and do do the calculation, although people don't the exercise. We came up with a simpler way of doing this, driving the initial fluid rate to to target and get it in between two and four uh, based on the guidelines. And we call that uh, the rule of ten. Okay, so you use the rule of nines to uh, estimate the the burn size, and then you take that and multiply by 10. Simple. Uh, There's a little bit of an adjustment if the patient is obese, um, but uh, I I would argue that doesn't even matter. Um, And so this is very useful in the setting of, you know, mass casualty where you have like 10 patients that you've got to start resuscitation in. You don't have to think about it. You just multiply it by 10. The pre-hospital community, emergency medicine community, uh, and the military community has, have all embraced this this method, the rule of ten, and we validated it in silico. And so, what is your initial fluid rate? If you have the variety of BSAs, just estimate up, round up to the nearest ten, and then multiply by ten. And then you focus your efforts where it should be focused, uh, using basic critical care principles, using a compilation of endpoints centered around urine output still. Uh, most of these patients are healthy, so you can rely on urine output. If they are not healthy and they have AK or CKD, you adjust. Uh, again, that's basic critical care principles. And then you use those um, com- that, th- that compilation of endpoints, to titrate the fluids up and down uh, based on what the patient gives you. And so uh, I was tickled when I saw this adopted very quickly in the burn or the pre-hospital community. This is a, a blog in emergency medicine. It's been incorporated into uh, pretty much every military handbook, uh, including the emergency war uh, surgery handbook. Uh, it's still not yet in ABLS and ATLS, but uh, I think it's headed there. It takes a while for um, you know adoption of these kinds of things. And so uh, I anticipate, I know I have a lot of uh, colleagues in the burn community who are very enthusiastic about this formula. And I, I was even more tickled when I saw this formula or this strategy and up to date. So if you look up burn resuscitation up to date, the rule of 10 is in there. All right, so once you start the resuscitation, uh, it's really uh, what you think is our normal targets in terms of normal map. If you're using uh, traditional sort of uh, assessments for intravascular volume measurements, uh, whatever your your thresholds are, lower just a tad bit. Because trying to normalize the patient um, intravascularly uh, and trying to normalize the MAP to an artificial goal is only going to do potential harm. And so what you're trying to do is uh, resuscitate the patient with the least amount of fluid uh, as possible. Why? Because if you try to normalize MAP and normalize, you know, IVC size and normalize CVP and you know, stroke volume variation, you're going to end up with an over resuscitation, guaranteed. You're going to give too much fluid. Um, and so, uh, you know, the biggest complications are um, thoracic S car syndrome, uh, extremity comp- uh, compartment syndrome, and, and S car syndrome. You can get orbital compartment syndrome. And for many, uh, you get, um, they, they undergo uh, prophylactic canthotomies to, to relieve the pressure to the uh, optical nerve. And so um, you'll consult ophthalmology very um, early in the hospitalization. uh, And many burn centers are used to doing this on day one. They just consult ophthalmology and they come and and make sure that they don't have uh, corneal abrasions. And then they're helping you monitor um, orbital pressures. And if it's greater than 20 or it's headed there, they do uh, cantotomies. Uh, And so this is important. Most drastic or morbid complication, over-resuscitation complication or resuscitation morbidity is abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh, And I know that in uh, trauma units around the the globe, this used to be a problem um, when, you know, uh, you have to get, uh, you have to swell to get well was the the common rallying uh, cry amongst trauma units. Now we're so good at resuscitating that this is hardly seen in in, uh, after trauma resuscitation. Everybody's sticking with blood and FFP, whole blood, whatever. In the burn community, this is still happening uh, on occasion. It, we've improved a lot over the last 15 years, but th- this is just uh, tragic when it happens because uh, the body is just not designed to sustain the metabolic consequence of a burn and on top of that, uh, abdominal injury or uh, open abdomen. That's just too much. And uh, patients just die of, of things that they shouldn't die of, uh, weird infections and whatnot. And so, uh, really, that is the most morbid thing that that could happen, abdominal compartment syndrome, and you do everything possible to try to prevent it. Okay, so what can you use to determine uh, as the resuscitation is going? So you're, you start it out at a rule of 10, 500 cc per hour for a 50% burn, uh, and then you're titrating it up, and you're at about a liter, liter and a half. Patient's still oliguric. The last two urine outputs – uh, the last two hours have been 10 and 10. What do you do? Um, you know, you know that when you hit those numbers and the patients on three pressures are in, um, you, you're you're in trouble. You're in this runaway resuscitation. Uh, what we used to do, it, the the first thing is you, you need to know how much fluid you've been giving and, and document it. So uh, using a simple flow sheet uh, has has had dramatic effect. Uh, just tracking the resuscitation hour to hour, knowing how much you've given, how much you're Going to give, and then um, when you get in the trouble, uh, you can use these numbers. The IV index is uh, 250 cc's per kig in the first 24 hours, and then the you can use the cc's per kig for TBSA, which allows you to compare it to traditional uh, fluid uh, volume projection. But regardless of what you use, if you know that you're in trouble and you're in this runaway resuscitation, um, th- this is ill-defined in the community, and uh, we. we at a State of the Science uh, about six months ago uh, where we discussed this uh, ad nauseum. How do you define a runaway resuscitation? Well, it's just the spidey sense in your brain that says we're in trouble, okay? You know, uh, the patient's getting crystalloid. Well, what do you do? There are a couple of things you can do. Um, You can start albumin. um, You can start FFP. And uh, oftentimes, uh, people that are in burn units that are used to these big recesses all the time you know, they they know that the type of patient that's going to require it anyway. So on, a like, you know, hour six, they're starting this stuff. And so, you know, typically, uh, uh, you know, if I were on call in the ICU and I had a big burn come in and I knew that things weren't going to uh, go well, I won't wait until I hit these arbitrary metrics. I'll just start albumin and FFT because I know that we're going to be in trouble. So that that may happen. And so albumin used to be frowned upon. Uh, particularly like two decades ago because there there was some literature that suggested you, you know, you um, have albumin extravasate into the interstitial tissue and then you can't claim it back. And then, you know, safe, the safe trial got published and they are like, no, you know, patients do okay with albumin. It doesn't kill anybody. And so uh, a lot of the burn centers uh, uh, started to adopt albumin early in the resuscitation as a practice. There are other adjuncts that are utilized commonly vitamin C Uh, There is a large multi-center trial that is trying to validate the single center study, the Tanaka trial that was done in Japan that was published over two decades ago um, that has resulted in practice change. It's sort of a common theme, right? Uh, Practice change after a single center study. Well, that's happened uh, in the burn centers uh, around the world where a lot of centers are using vitamin C and we don't really have good multi-center level one evidence. And so that's being, it's called the victory trial that's undergoing right now, led by Canada. Um, and then there are other adjuncts, um, extrapora blood, uh, purification strategies that I won't go into depth. Um, recently the DOD funded a large observational study to, uh, sort of, you know, cat, sort of catalog the experience across burn centers of North America and, um, this abrupt consortium got formed, and and this is a very nice study that was published in Annals of Surgery a couple of months ago. And really, you know, the bottom line was that uh, albumin seemed to be helpful. It's used a lot over two-thirds of patients, and it's used appropriately uh, in patients that are sick and and not having a good fluid resuscitation, and it does reduce fluid requirements. Uh, And so um, it's something that uh, has been adopted. FFP is still something that uh, needs to be looked at, uh, from a practice pattern standpoint. And um, uh, there was an Omera trial, a randomized control trial that showed decreased fluids. That was a single center trial. It's not been replicated in a uh, multi center fashion. So, optimizing resuscitation um, again, briefly, your goal is to maintain organ perfusion fairly using basic critical care principles at the least physiologic cost. Yes, you're concerned about organ failure from under resuscitation but you should be just as or even more concerned about over resuscitation and do the things that you need to do to decrease the overall fluid rate. Um, and so this is that vision support algorithm that I was uh, sort of referring to earlier. Uh, this resulted in a, um, you know, sort of uh, algorithm that got computerized by uh, our colleagues in, in San Antonio. Uh, we validated it showing that it, Increased fluid requirements, and uh, that's been converted into a tablet, and now on an iPad, it's in an app. It's going on on a a regular um, cell phone or iPhone soon. I don't think it's there yet. Um, The ODE did a multi-center trial looking at the burn navigator and its impact. This was published recently. It's still an EPUB like the Annals of Surgery one, and um, use of this burn navigator. It's been licensed. uh, to a company and uh, really DOD just gave it to them. And and, um, and what they uh, determined uh, was that, number one, it's being used quite frequently. In fact, about 15% of all resuscitations in the country are now uh, guided by this technology, this decision support. It's sort of like... Um, the insulin, uh, uh, you know, insulin uh, decision support stuff that we have all over the place, uh, glucomander and so on and so forth. But anyway, um, they demonstrated in this paper that it's associated with decreased incidence of shock and uh, o- overall fluid volumes if you follow the recommendations. And really, I think the benefit of this algorithm is not the 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 inner workings, the algorithm itself. It's really the display, um, and you really get a good image as you're resuscitating the patient. Uh, as to how well you're doing and so it's a good way to qc your resuscitation and any uh you know thing that we do in medicine if you're actually looking at the data and you're QCing stuff that that is uh, a hallmark of you know good care and so that that's essentially what this does all right so how about inhalation injury um what you know really when we say inhalation injury we're really just talking about smoke inhalation injury uh, there are three different types of inhalation injury, according to the uh, ABLS course. The, there's upper airway injury. So if, let's say, you inhale a ball of flame, you get uh, oral pharynx, you know, thermal burns. Um, we, we don't count that as true inhalation injury, but, you know, uh, in our numbers. But that's inhalation injury. Um, and then uh, smoke inhalation injury, which is, uh, you know, your parenchyma is involved. And then, um Uh, you know, poisoning like cyanide and carbon monoxide. Regardless, when we're talking about smoke inhalation injury, uh, what happens is not a thermal injury to the airway, but a chemical injury to the airway. Uh, It's the products of combustion that stick to the tracheal, bronchial epithelium, and that causes damage and sloughing. And you get these goblet cells that hypersecrete mucus. And so, and then the cilia, these columnar, pseudocolumnar cells have no cilia anymore because that's been decimated and um, you get uh, a bronch that looks like this with this um, really tarry, you know, uh, substance that's, uh, uh, you know, caked on. Um, and um, and you get hypersecretions, and, and these patients are set up for developing uh, pneumonias. And, you know, um, the burn community doesn't like to call it ventilator-associated pneumonia because it's not a really – linked to the ventilator it's just that they had inhalation injury and so there's no such thing as an inhalation injury associated pneumonia although there should be um patients i mean 60 70 percent of these patients get pneumonia uh just based on pathophysiology alone that makes sense and so you just have to be on the lookout for it and sometimes it happens on t2 and so um uh so you know you, you have to be quick with your trigger uh, when you notice something different and so uh you can imagine uh combine smoke and patient injury with you know thick scar around the chest uh and then twenty liters of volume, so edema uh and then you on top of that you have abdominal compartment syndrome. you can imagine um how difficult it could be and and then on top of that, the minimal ventilation requirement you're not talking about a normal patient who just has uh you know sepsis it's everything. Add, uh, that's additive with a minute ventilation requirement that's like, you know, 30 uh, liters per minute. And so that, that's, that's pretty dramatic. And so uh, you, you, it, it's challenging. And so uh, in terms of the optimum or ideal way to, to ventilate these patients, uh, there's, there's lots of debate as to which mo- modality is the best, you know, no, no different than any other population, really. Uh, at the end of the day i've concluded over you know 20 years in ICU practice it really doesn't matter uh which mode you utilize aprv high you know high frequency uh well um, you know oscillator may be damaging if you don't know how to use the oscillator and the less practice you get the, the 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 more uh that becomes true uh and so uh, really it's uh, the mode that you're most comfortable with uh in many burn centers around the country you may encounter some a ventilator uh, that's like that looks like this. This is called the VDR. Uh, it de- uh, delivers a high frequency percussive mode of ventilation, HFPV, not HFOV. So uh, it's a little bit different. It, it's you know the, the, there's non-invasive uh, uh, technologies that use the same mode, and it's basically internal chest PT. Um, so these subtitle breaths are stacked on top of each other. Uh, you can see that, that, uh, you know, in the mid trachea there, um, and air is flowing in with these subtitle breasts, and it pushes air out uh, as air goes in. So it's, uh, it's almost like, um, uh, internal chest PT and a way to clear secretions. And you could imagine why that is, uh, attractive to somebody taking care of somebody, you know, a patient who has inhalation injury, no ability to clear their own secretions and tons of it. Um, this is an attractive. Option. I suppose you can have patients on a regular conventional modes and then do IPV on top of it, uh, IPPV, but that's, um, uh, this is ventilator is basically doing that continuously. And so, um, you know, uh, does it really matter? Uh, so that was a big question when I started in the ICU, and so we decided to do a randomized control trial. You can do that when you're well-resourced. Just think of an idea and just execute, do a randomized control trial. Um, and so we concluded in this study that it was a small study, but uh, uh, nonetheless, it was the largest to date. Um, uh, but what, what we determined is you can do low tidal volume in these patients, um, but uh, in about a third of the patients, be prepared to fail because you're just not going to be able to keep up with uh, the low tidal volumes. Um, even with the respiratory rates cramped up to like 35, 40, uh, you're just not going to keep up with the ventilation requirements that, that these patients have. Um, It's just uh, not doable. And so uh, one out of every three patients needed to be um, uh, sort of rescued, quote unquote, because of both uh, ventilation issues, as well as hypoxemic oxygenation issues. If they had inhalation injury, two out of three uh, had problems with low tidal volume. That strategy. It just doesn't, it's challenging. uh, And you can probably understand why. And so, Really, uh, the the bottom line was one size does not fit all, all, and this is true—a true statement for any population, really. But strict adherence to the total volume strategy sometimes is extremely difficult uh, in burns, Um, and if if they have an inhalation injury on top of their burn, it's you know more true than not. And so we advocate for an individualized approach. Do what you can um, uh, to meet your oxygenation and ventilation goals, and still adhere to the principles of lung protection. But, you know, if you have somebody who's, uh, you know, has a 20 liter recess and they have abdominal compartment syndrome and they have, um, you know, a thick escar around their chest after, even after, you know, escharotomies, uh, do you really need to be strict about that plateau pressure of 30? No. I mean, you, you can let, let go a little bit and let it creep up to 40, 45. Sometimes 50, you know, you know if you uh, look at measure uh, transesophageal pressures, that, that actually uh, mm-hmm. tells you that um, these patients, um, you know, can have PEEPs very, very high and plateau pressures pretty high, and it's not necessarily uh, a measure of transalveolar pressure. So you're not, you're still adhering to the principles of lung protection. Uh, you just need to do what you can to ventilate them, Okay. So individualize your approach and um, take whatever tool you have available to you to, to get there. All right, how about a acute kidney injury? You know, I, I had a lot of fun in the burn unit coming up with, you know, because it was just basically a blank canvas and uh, not a lot of literature, at least, um, uh, you know, multi-center stuff. So, um, you know, we went to town. Um, and so traditionally, these are small studies uh, that demonstrate that, uh if you have a burn and then you develop acute kidney injury, um mortality is really high it, it, traditionally, like to eighty to a hundred percent. And so um, you know, this is even with uh dialysis. Uh and so there was a there was a period of time where, you know, it was, you know, we, we thought once patients, burn patients developed AKI, uh that was end game. That was the end game. Um and uh, over the last thirty years, slowly the burn community, along with the nephrology community, realized maybe we could support these patients and make them live a little bit longer, so that we could, you know, close their wounds, give them a little time, give them a chance. Uh, and so uh, that's the strategy and the direction we've been heading. And so um, we, we did a multi-center trial looking at something else, but uh, uh, simultaneously with this, we did this multi-center observational studies to just look at practice patterns, and this is the largest cohort of uh, burn patients uh, that uh, we have available uh, to look at data from, 170 or so patients. Uh, Average age, you can see big burns, 40% or above, um, uh, about a third with inhalation injury, and you can see when they went on some type of renal replacement therapy, and, and nowadays it's Kidney replacement therapy. I don't know if any of you knew that. I'm sure you did, but uh, the lingo has now changed. Like during the pandemic, uh, the nephrologists decided, "Oh, we're just going to change renal replacement therapy to kidney replacement therapy." Didn't tell everybody, so I, I just found that out. It's kidney replacement therapy. And so, anyway, uh, the the uh, when kidney replacement therapy was initiated, the, the, this was the stage of AKI that the patients had in this cohort of 170 patients across. You know, uh, I think 10 or 11 burn centers around the country, uh, including Hospital Center uh, here. Laura Johnson and um, Jeff shop participated. And so you can see that uh, sometimes there's, like, there's very minimal AKI. Uh, in fact, there are – and this tells you that there's other reasons that the patients go on, um, probably profound acidosis uh, or, you know, volume overload, and, and they're making, a, you know, very little urine, and you have to try to get them um, – de-resuscitated. Uh, Neutral modes, most uh, burn centers, at least among those who participated in this study, uh, used continuous modes of kidney replacement therapy. And when you compare the different modes, overall, there doesn't seem to be a, a difference, but um, we did a subgroup analysis. But anyway, so uh, these 70 patients, what we concluded is that mortality is better uh, than you know historical uh, you know averages, 80 to 100%. It's now down to 50%. Uh, long-term outcomes, uh, are, are not that bad. I mean, um, long-term need for, uh, kidney replacement therapy, you know, home dialysis after about six months, uh, only one in 10 among survivors needed long-term hemodialysis. And so we looked at a subgroup of shock, as I was saying earlier, and, um, and there seemed to be a signal, sort of, uh, looking at the different modalities of continuous kidney replacement therapy, and when we separated out CBBH versus other modalities, so lumped in uh, CBBHD and CBBHDF, you can see that uh, it reaches significance barely. Um, so, this is a signal, and that this resulted in another paper uh, that we published last year um, and uh, sort of focusing on this population. And so, what we concluded is, you know, over time, is timely initiation of kidney replacement therapy with an individualized preference towards continuous modes. Why? Because most of these patients, when they get put on kidney replacement therapy, they're on multiple pressors. So intermittent doesn't work, certainly. So that's why you prefer continuous modes. If they're hemodynamically stable and they're not going to go to the OR for the next, you know, two weeks, okay, fine, do intermittent. Uh, It's probably not going to make a difference. But if they're at risk for some type of hypotensive event um, during kidney replacement therapy, choose a continuous mode, please. Uh, at relatively higher than recommended doses, the recommended dose in normal populations is 20 to 25. Is that going to work in somebody whose pH is uh, 7.0 and uh, is on three pressers and uh, has a BUN of 100 and, and their skin and their wounds are looking yellow from the uremia? Probably not. Get them controlled because you're trying to optimize the conditions of wound healing and, um, you know, a, a puny dose for a big patient is not going to work. Individualize the dose, please. Uh, And that has become standard practice in burns with AKI, and um, that's made an impact in mortality. And we think that uh, CVVH should be the modality of choice. That's arguable. So this is a take-home. I'm going to move on to electrical injury. All right. So there's a nice review that I found from four years ago. It's in an emergency medicine um, uh, journal. Um, Here's the QR code for those of you who are interested uh, very nice review. And, you know, I think electrical injury, we, we all electrical injury patients get managed in burn centers. So I guess that's – we have the most experience. Uh, but it it's really um, – when you say electrical injury, it's such a heterogeneous population. You're not just dealing with one type of patient. It, it really has to do with, like, you know, this really complex uh, – you know uh science behind electricity in the first place, and I'm not gonna go into like bore you with all these details, but you know uh just briefly and basically, when we're talking about current and you know uh, at home we have AC alternating current in uh in industrial uh, areas uh, we're dealing with direct. Uh but that that's amperes, or so amps. We're dealing in terms of amps. So that's the total amount of electrons that goes across. You could see that blue little guy uh goes across this gradient. Voltage is like um how much uh you know of a difference there is between the energy between one area to the next. So it's really dealing with the potential energy or stored energy. Okay. And um, you know, in the in the ICU, and when you're shocking someone, you deal in joules. Well, joules is taking that one amp through, okay, and resistance is, is uh, characterized by and described in ohms, uh, in one second. And so, when we're talking in joules, um, that that's it's a unit of energy. And then uh, watts uh, that, you know, we're all familiar with if you buy light bulbs, is um, joules per second. And, and so... Why did I go through that? Because you know it's really confusing uh, when you're trying to manage these patients and like you're trying to characterize them. uh, The way you characterize them is is by volts, Um, so low voltage or high voltage. uh, 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 You know when when they come in, and so that that's the key question. And what you realize is that you know you could be in a low voltage uh, environment, and let's say you grab a, a live wire it could be a uh 240 volt uh outlet a live wire and let's say you clasped that hand and the contact time was like you know 5 6 seconds that's a that could result in a pretty big burn whereas even a high voltage um sort of volt and you get jolted that may not uh, you know, result in, in in a big burn, and and then and then there's this idea, you know, there, there's this um, other category of an arc burn, you know. So electricians working, and then they get or or um, they're working on a line outside, and there's an arc. Well, these arcs are like 2,000 degrees, and they could like basically spontaneously combust your clothes, and you can you can have a flame burn from it, but you have you don't have any electricity go through your your body. And so uh it, it's really heterogeneous the, the, the different types of presentations uh that come in when you're saying electrical. Uh and then obviously you have like lightning strike, which you know, uh very rare. And so, you know, there's the a huge spectrum of presentations uh, and so you sort of have to drill down like what was your contact time, do you remember? Did you have lost loss of consciousness? Did you get thrown back? And so now we gotta deal with like you know, trauma and uh you know fractures and all that. But was it a blast? Uh, you know, did, did all your clothes cut, catch on fire? All these questions are very pertinent, and it kind of describes how severe the patient is. And so, the bottom line is not all, all electrical burns are the same. There's, it's, you're dealing with a heterogeneous group of patients in the way they present and the types of injuries they have in terms of tissue injury. Contact time is really the most important when you're dealing with AC, especially alternating current type injuries, and when you see a electrical quote-unquote electrical burn um don't, don't be fooled like you you see like a pretty big gsa with that arm but underneath normal uh skin you're gonna have tissue injury you know um resistance when you have tissue that is resistant uh and um current is passing through it that creates a lot of heat and what is the most resistant uh tissue it's it's your bone And so let's say you clasp that hand and electricity is going through your bone. Well, that's going to heat up your bone and uh, the adjacent uh, tissue is going to to necrose because that's going to be damaged. And so you have to think about all these things um, and uh, really uh, look for rhabdo is what you're looking for and uh, look for compartments, uh, you know, Do a baseline exam, feeling all the major compartments uh, around the the injury, and then do a serial exam as you resuscitate them. And even a 20% burn, you're you're gonna you may be resuscitating them like they're 50, 60% burn. And so so just be prepared for a large resuscitation. Um, and and, um, and and obviously look for um, you know bony injury from from uh, secondary trauma, so on and so forth. So all these things that come into play. It is not just as simple as, oh, a patient has electrical injury. We treat them all the same way. Okay? All right. So uh, sort of an awkward transition, but let's just put that aside for a second and uh, delve into altitude. Okay? So, you know, I had to hit the books to prepare for this lecture because uh, I don't remember, like, the last time I took care of an altitude patient. If you're in the East Coast, it's like the chances of you encountering an altitude patient is zero. Um, And so none of us, maybe some of you have, I don't know. But anyway, acute mountain sickness is the the, the thing that you worry about at about 2,500 meters. And uh, you can see, uh, you know, described uh, some of the symptoms. And some of you who maybe skied in Colorado and are not acclimated, didn't have a chance to acclimate, you may have felt these symptoms. You were probably, you probably had acute mountain sickness, um and some of this, a lot of this is you're hypoventilating, um, and uh supposedly there's a sympathetic drive. And uh I read in a couple of places you just feel like you're you're hungover. Okay, that's acute mountain mountain sickness. Um, um the extreme form of acute mountain sickness uh only occurs at greater than four thousand meters and in you know the highest peak in the United States uh is barely over four thousand meters. Uh, and so unless you go to the summit, uh, the likelihood of this happening is very low. But it's basically you know, cerebral edema, so HACE, high-altitude cerebral edema. And so you can sort of see the comparison. There's a nice chart that converts uh, meters to feet for you. And, you know, as you're in a plane, you're nowhere close to even um, encountering high-altitude-like symptoms. or are at 8,000 uh, feet. Ski resort, maybe 2,500 Uh, Or above meters. Uh, And then um, you can see in comparison, Mount Everest. And here's a chart of all the peaks in the United States. And you can see in Washington, Mount Rainier is the highest peak at around 4,400 meters uh, in the East Coast. That's why I made that comment. There are not enough uh, elevation in the East Coast to to put you at risk, uh, even if you go to the summit uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, It's just uh, not physiologically. Possible. Colorado, yes. Utah, yes. And Washington, yes. And so, let's say you're going to those areas, and uh, you are brave enough to be a mountaineer and, and want to go to the summit. Um, do you prophylax to prevent mountain sickness? Um, and, and you know, I, I uh, found this gem here in travel medicine, uh, which was a systematic review meta-analysis. And you know, I wonder, well, why would you give acetazolamide um, And this is a commonly sort of recommended. Uh, drug, acetazolamide, as you know, is a car- carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. It basically induces a metabolic acidosis, so that like the hypoventilation that occurs, you're overcoming that. So it, ma- it makes you hyperventilate, uh, and then there uh, su- there's supposedly this um, impact effect in CSF production, and then um, ADH secretion uh, inhibition that that uh, helps um, sort of systemically overcome. Or prevent acute mountain sickness and in this study what they demonstrated across multiple studies is that um th- these are some uh, these are all randomized control trials for pre- prevention um lower doses is just as good as higher doses uh, at least that's what they concluded and so if you're going to prophylax you know uh, acetazolamide doesn't come with a zero risk you're going to have side effects um you're you're uh you're going to get as much benefit from the lowest dose uh, uh, as opposed to the highest dose. So just pick the lowest dose that's recommended. Uh, Other treatments for these conditions, you know, you know, uh, cerebral edema, those patients are are sick and uh, probably going to die if they don't descend appropriately and quickly. Um, But most of these patients, uh, you know, if they're starting to get altered, you want to get them down uh, elevation, uh, put oxygen on them right away, and then uh, steroids has been advocated, um, especially uh, if you're dealing with altered mental status. All right. Well, how, how about high-altitude pulmonary edema? Well, this occurs. It doesn't. You don't have to be above 4,000 meters, but this occurs even at heights at uh, 3,000 meters. So this is possible in uh, areas that I described in the United States. Uh, this is in uh, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema like every other pulmonary edema that you commonly see that's non-cardiogenic occurs sometime most often described in the second night that you're in this elevation and you basically have it can start with a very subtle cough, you're just coughing and then you're a little bit short of breath when on exertion but then you start having pink frothy sputum and you're like, uh-oh, that's a problem and then they're tachypneic and tachycardic and their uh, chest X-ray is bilateral, you know, opacities and they look like they have ARDS. And so that's tape. Hey, um, how do you treat them? I, you know, I mean, it's like every other uh, form of non-cretogenic, except, you know, um, you got to get them to an elevation that is safe. So the, uh, rapid descent, uh, put put them on oxygen, you know, uh, sort of plump up those, uh, that pulmonary vasculature with the oxygen, the pulmonary vasodilation. Nifedipine has been recommended. Um, Steroids has been recommended. It helps uh, uh, decrease alveolar sort of uh, extravasation uh, theoretically. And then um, uh, other pulmonary vasodilators uh, like uh, sildenafil and nitric oxide has has been written about and tested, uh, just case reports and and so on and so forth. Um, I found this gem for you. I had to dig for this one Uh, in high-altitude medicine and biology. And so uh, in a randomized control trial uh, in India to the, the Himalayas, they actually took volunteers, believe it or not, and they said these had to be lowlanders. I guess there's different categories of people when you're dealing with altitude medicine, but lowlanders, um uh, they, volu- you know, took these lowlander volunteers, brought them up to their hospital, which was at uh, 3,500 uh, meter elevation. And then, I'm, they, you know, it's hard to, to know reading this uh, paper, whether they had a chamber or they actually made these people go up to four uh, 4,000 meters, it's it's really unclear. But regardless, they, they got them up to another 500 meters of elevation, and then um, a bunch of them had HAPE. Uh, uh, so <laughs> uh, imagine trying to volunteer for this study. And then they randomized them the steroids and oxygen, uh, nifedipine and oxygen, and then only oxygen. Um, and uh, what they demonstrated was that there's no difference. Um, and so, you know, can you translate this and extrapolate this to people that are, like, in 6,000-meter, um, uh, you know, uh, elevation and then develop pulmonary edema? I'm not sure. But uh, it's, it appears based on that study that uh, oxygen is is enough. Uh These other uh, therapies like steroids and, and calcium channel blockers, if you choose to do it, it, it may benefit, but it doesn't seem like it benefits a lot. Um, based on that randomized control trial. So take home for altitude, uh, you know, think about the different therapies. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, hate can occur uh, at elevations uh, that uh, are available in the United States. So you, it's possible if you practice in Colorado, you've, you've seen this a couple of times. All right. Uh, hitting the opposite way, uh, heat stroke. So um, I I found this very nice uh, recent review on heat stroke uh, published in the New England Journal three years ago. Uh, Here's a QR code for you, so you can put it in your files. It's a nice quick read. Um, And so, you know, I think the most pertinent thing that I found uh, when when uh, sort of reviewing heat stroke in this paper is that you have to separate out these these patients into two major broad categories. Why? Because the one category is much more severe. And so you have the classic heat stroke where you have a nursing home patient and they're in the middle of a heat wave and blah, blah, blah. And they come in and they're hyperthermic. Okay. Those patients generally do okay. Uh It's the exertional heat stroke, you know, the, the private that just went out in, you know, 90 degree heat and humidity and just came back from a, heat, you know, a two mile run and they collapsed. Uh, that patient, you really, really, they could die. Uh, and so uh, you you got to gotta triage them differently, okay, because it appears that um, uh, exertional heat stroke category, they're just not able to compensate. I, I, actually, both categories are not able to compensate, but the exertional heat stroke patients have even a higher degree of not being able to compensate, and they're uh, at higher risk. And so, are uh, some guidelines uh, in this chart, uh, really, I mean, uh, the, the mainstay here is getting them cooled as quickly as possible, um, and, um, and then treating seizures if they happen, and, and so on and so forth. I, you know, I, I don't uh, expect you to read all this, but this is just to show, if you are able to uh, sort of scan some of this, this is just basic critical care, supportive care, for every category of organ failure. And... These are all the things that you can expect, um, and you just have to treat them accordingly. You know, uh, if, if they have, uh, evidence of cerebral edema, go, um, you know, go crazy with the hyperosmotic therapy and do what you can to decrease intracranial hypertension and, and so on and so forth. And, and then all the other organs do what you do on a day to day basis, uh, in the critical care setting. All right. Um, there is, uh, you know, there, I've encountered now in the last 20 years many different ways to to warm or cool patients, and a lot of times the same technology is utilized for both. And mm-hmm. and you may have encountered an intravascular catheter that does something very similar. Uh, typically, it's used to to um, to cool patients in after cardiac arrest. Um, so they, they uh, randomized patients in in this study, pilot study. Uh, to cool patients using their intravascular temperature management and really the bottom line here is that you can cool pretty effectively but it takes a little while there's a little bit of a lag right in the first three hours that hour um because you you, you have to turn you know turn the temperature way down and then you gotta let the blood circulate whereas like if you're using all measures like um uh conventional measure, measures or methods uh you, you can cool them pretty quickly you just don't hit that target and sustain that target for a pretty long time. But, you know, in this um, in this uh, stability study, they showed that they had less less organ failure. You know, take that with a grain of salt. The Arctic Sun, same kind of deal. It's probably going to take a little while. Uh, and so, you know, I, I dug a little bit. There be a better way to, to do this. And, and so here's a nice case study that that I found through – another like um, uh, sort of a CPG, and it's a case study. But the, the concept is, is it makes a lot of sense, and so that's, what, that's why I presented to you. So basically take a body bag, a body bag where, you, you know, everybody knows what a body bag is, and just stick it, like throw a bunch of ice in there, and then zip up the patient in that body bag of ice. This gets your results pronto uh and if you have somebody that um is hyperthermic and in is in that exertional heat stroke category uh this may be a method that you utilize that may be helpful and if you don't have a body bag just use like some type of like um you know waterproof bag i guess trash bags could work but just wrap them wrap the body and in and, and uh pack the body with ice um, so quick message for heat stroke Classic versus exertional is really key uh, in terms of triaging the patients. Uh, Apply great, you know, uh, basic critical care for supportive measures. uh, And then cool as quickly as possible. That concludes my talk. Thank you for your attention. And uh, let me know if you have any human ice burrito. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Let me know if you have any questions.